I just felt shameful that my body gave up and I couldn't be this person that, that I thought I was or needed to be for myself and for others. And it just comes out in a lot of aggression in certain things because I'm scared. And I'm realizing now over time and talking through it with my wife and my friends and family and things, you don't have to, to always be like that. You can, you can be okay to be vulnerable. That's Michael Bowen. He was on his way to work one day when he got an urgent call to come into the emergency department. I'm all suited up, ready to go in the city for work and, and the doctor calls and he goes, where are you? I said, oh, just about to go in the city. He goes, uh, no, don't do that. Go to Northern Beaches Hospital now. Michael got the shock of his life when he was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, a rare form of blood cancer that affects just over 300 Australians each year. Within like the hour of me getting there, a nurse pulled back the curtain and goes, Mr. Bowen, we need to, uh, we need to talk to you about your results. And she said, we think you have leukemia. The man of the house with a young family, Michael's first thoughts were of his baby daughter, confronted with the question of if he was going to be there for her. My daughter. Yeah, she's just not going to have a dad. No one could be prepared for the hardship in the years that followed, the immense mental and physical difficulty of living with cancer and the self-applied pressure to get back to being the man he thought he was sent Michael spiralling into a deep depression. You got to a point where some days you're like, is this even really worth it? Like, can I get myself out of bed to do this today. But step by step and with great support from friends and family, Michael slowly dragged himself out of the pit of despair that had all but swallowed him. Now Michael's in remission and sharing his story as an ambassador for the Leukemia Foundation. I thought I'm never gonna not continue to offer the people that the hope that there is. September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month, so if someone you love is diagnosed with blood cancer, please reach out to the Leukemia Foundation on 1800 620 420 or visit leukemia.org.au for help. You can also join the tens of thousands of Australians impacted by blood cancer by participating in this year's Light the Night event on Saturday the 16th of October. Visit lightthenight.org.au for more info. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. This episode is sponsored by Bolton Brothers, the guys dedicated to changing the face of men's mental health, and Ski for Life, the organization promoting mental health and suicide prevention through their annual ski relay in South Australia. Check out their websites and follow them on socials. Michael, in your 20s, you were in peak physical fitness and you were playing high-level rugby. How did you feel in yourself physically at that time in your life? Hey, you feel great. You're 18 years of age, 19 years of age, finishing school. And I'm from Newcastle originally, so you moved down to Manly and you paid to play sport and feeling fit and working out and good, good structure to your day and making new friends and things like that. So, yes, you're, you're feeling top of the world and, and you've got a goal and you're striving towards it and it felt great. When you reflect, do you feel like you took your health for granted? Like you just expected that it would always be there in at a hundred percent? Yeah, I uh, I never had any issues as a kid growing up in terms of health wise. 
my health was was definitely taken for granted. And then following that, you were working in finance. What were you expecting that your future was going to look like at that time? I moved down to Sydney, got a got a, a career playing footy, and then uh, that didn't work out. So I moved back home. I was in Newcastle for another three or four years playing football there too. And then um, the GFC hit, and my job in mining services at BHP was was made redundant. So then I moved back down to Sydney. I was working in IT for Adobe for a couple of years. And then um, I had a financial advisor come to the Adobe office and 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 talking about what they can do. And I just didn't know what they were talking about. So I had an interest in it and wanted to get closer to the fire. So I, uh, I found a job in financial services a couple of years after that and, and then off we went. So that's the sort of background to it before we get to the point where we get diagnosed with a big C. So how did your life change when you had your daughter? It was great. We were married in 2016 and it came along pretty quickly. And then we moved back from Melbourne to Sydney to be close to her family. Yeah, it's great. No issues. Perfect little little girl, healthy and um, just hitting all the milestones. So there was no signs of any issues with anyone. We're all healthy. And, and then about when she was maybe nine months old, I started to get a lot of black dots that would run across my eye um, all through the day. And it was really bad in the morning when I'd wake up. And um, because we changed uh, health funds with, uh, with Farah being born, there was a wait period of, of sort of three months. So I was waiting for that. But what I was really waiting for is to go and get your cheap sunnies and, and glasses. That was the real driver to go to the, to go to the health fund. And, um, you, you sign up and you go in and see the optometrist and, and she's doing all the tests. And then she, uh, she said to me, Oh, do you, do you work out a bit? I said, Oh, not really. Not as much as what I used to No, Why? She said, oh, okay. Um, and I, I was so strange just sitting there just waiting to get my test done. And she's asking these questions and then she says, Oh, do you, do you smoke? And I said, no, I don't smoke. She goes, what about, what about drinking? And I said, Oh, a little bit. And she said, Oh, <laughs> And you're like, what does this you're, you're, per- what does this person think of me? Like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, is she judging me or what's happening? I'm just kind of the optometrist, and she's asking all these really strange questions. So I just answered them as honest as I could, and then she um she said, okay, we'll leave it with me. And she came back about oh, five minutes later, and she had this um this this A4 piece of paper, which is a which was a a picture of my um retina or behind my eye, and it was all red. It was like really really red, and she said um. She said, the, what's causing these these blurriness and these black dots running across your eyes? It's sort of like watching a comet sort of go across the night sky, but it, they were black as, as opposed to white. Yeah, right. And and she said, what's what's causing it is you've got all these bursting blood vessels behind your eyes. Mm. And she said, I think you should go see a specialist. And I was like, oh, more, more money. I, have to, I just want my specs. <laughs> and, and, and so, oh, okay, all right, well. And said, "Oh, maybe you also just go to your GP and and um and get a blood test." And I didn't have a GP at that time. As I said, my health was pretty pretty good. How long so had, like, oh, how long had you been having those symptoms by this point? Probably three four months when I really started to notice it. What happened from then? You went and saw your doctor. What led to you being diagnosed? Yeah, yeah. So that was on a that was on a Monday, and then we were doing a conference that week, and I had clients in town, and I, I had all these dinners and things that I needed to go to. So I didn't actually get a spot until Wednesday afternoon and my wife was actually going to the doctors for just a standard checkup. And uh, I said, oh, can I tag along? And she said, oh, what for? I said, oh, here's my here's my picture of uh, my eyes. And I sort of showed it to her with sort of like, oh, 
hey, hey, mum, here's a here's my artwork from school. Yeah. And she looked at me and goes, why didn't you tell me? I said, oh, I don't even know what it is. And nothing was really dropping. The penny wasn't dropping at all. And then uh, and then she goes, all right, we'll come in. So I went to the GP with her and, and she did her thing. And then the doctor looked at me and said, so what can I help you with? And I said, oh, here's a picture of my eyes. I need to do a blood test, please. And the GP sat up really straight, straight away. And he goes, all right, let's go now. I said, oh, okay, all right. Not a good go. sign. So then we walked in. <laughs> Again, yeah, Carl, again, I wasn't, the penny wasn't dropping. I yeah. did, did not think anything was going to happen. So anyway, I did the blood test and that was about, what, three o'clock, four o'clock on the Wednesday. Uh, and then the next morning at, at 9 a.m., I'm all suited up, ready to go in the city for work. And, and the doctor calls and he goes, where are you? I said, oh, just about to go in the city. He goes, uh, no, don't do that. Go to Northern Beaches Hospital now. And I said, why? And he said, oh, I'd, I'd prefer you go and, and they can tell you there. I said, mate, I'm not going to the hospital going to emergency without actually knowing what's going on and he said oh your, your blood your bloods have come back and your white cell count is really elevated and i said well what's normal and he said oh but for parts per million or milliliters it's white blood cells should be between six and eleven and for those listening if i get that wrong apologies but my recollection is between six and eleven and uh, i said well what am i and he said 140 Oof. and i went and i went jeez is that is that the worst you've seen? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty bad. <laughs> and I said, is that the worst you've seen? Like, what does that mean? And he goes, well, your, your, your major organs are under extreme stress. And he said you could be at risk of a blood clot or a stroke or something more sinister like cancer. Jesus. And I was like, and I was like, wow, okay. So I should go to the hospital then. He goes, yeah. So anyway, so. Um, How did you feel in yourself at that time? Did you feel like your organs were under stress or did you feel fine? Oh. Uh, no, just my eyes and a bit of blurriness in my eyes. That's about it. And I just thought I needed a, a, a better prescription, to be honest, from the optometrist. I didn't think there was anything major. So nothing – like I was carrying a bit of weight. I was on planes and traveling around the country and, and doing lunches and dinners with clients and, and not exercising as much. So I was carrying a bit more weight than I should have been. I thought, oh, maybe I'll just need to lose some weight. Anyway, so he's called me and, and he, um, he goes, no, you've got to go to the hospital. So my wife had the car at the time, so I got in an Uber. And I'm in the Uber. Um, it's about 20 minutes to the Northern Beaches Hospital where I was. And I was in the Uber and um, I called my wife and said, oh, so how are you doing? She goes, oh, yeah. I said, oh, I'm just in an Uber on the way to the hospital. She goes, what? I said, yeah, my white blood cell counts, counts like 140. Mm. And she goes, oh, okay, I'll see you there. So then she hung up, got in the emergency, walked in the door. I said, oh, presenters Michael Bowen. I've been referred to by my GP. Um and I went and looked up in the system and then bang, just straight through. Didn't have to sit in the uh, waiting area, nothing, just straight through. And I felt like, I felt fine, no real signs. I looked like what I do today, just a bit skinnier. And uh, So are you panicking at I this walked, point or are you still not believing it? I just It's an out-of-body experience. Like you get there and you're like, all right, cool. So I'm over here and you're over there and uh, I'm just watching you do your thing. Yeah. So it's really strange. Anyway, I walked in. Um, they, they they put me into a room and not in a room, a, a bed, and then they had the the the, uh, the curtains pulled, and then oh, about I don't know half an hour later, just I was, I was working, I was emailing people and just calling my boss and saying oh, I just got hospital for some stuff, and but it wasn't Penny was not dropping. And my wife walked in and she was like pretty white, so she sort of knew she's in healthcare and and she sort of knew something was going down. We're sitting there, and, and then within like the hour of me getting there, a nurse pulled back the curtain and goes, "Mr. Bowen, we need to uh, we need to talk to you about your results." And she said, "We think you have leukemia." 
and you sort of it's quite yeah, it's pretty raw you sort of I can see that I can see the nurse coming in still yeah and yeah. I can then I can then I can then feel myself darting to my wife and looking at her face and it's just like she is shocked and disbelief and you're like what is this how it works like is this what it's like in the movies what was the first thing you thought of in that moment my daughter yeah she's just not gonna have a dad because i didn't know how bad it was i didn't know what 140 versus 10 versus yeah of course it, it didn't really mean much to that point yeah i'll talk and i'll talk mandarin to me i didn't really understand that that jargon and lingo so um so yeah so you, you sort of look at your wife and you think Farah's not gonna have a dad um our life is the potential that we had and the goals and, and aspirations that we had as a, as a couple and a, and a husband and wife and our family is not going to be fulfilled. Uh, the potential, just all these things just rush. It's just like a tsunami. And totally, totally it's, it's, out it's, of nowhere as well because yeah, one minute- I'm still in a suit. <laughs> your, your life's cruising along and you're completely expecting it to go down a certain path, not really a, a worry in the world and then bang- everything completely turned on its head, not just for you, but for your family and everyone you know. It's insane how life can do that. And obviously you're the you're the man of the house. Your family's relying on you to provide. Did you feel yeah, the did you feel the pressure straight away? Not not just oh I have to survive because I'm a human being who wants to live, but the pressure of like I've I've got to find a way to get through this for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big plan. I'm yin and yang with my wife. She she loves shooting from the hip and just being um, doing things as it, as they come to her. And I'm a big planner. So the, the, once you get through that, um, those different emotions, the first thing is oh, I've got to call my financial advisor and make sure my insurances are sorted out in case I do cark it. And everything's all sorted. And uh-huh. then you got to call your mum. Then you got to call your mum and dad. And right, and just then you did- call. Then you got to. Just going. Yeah, just uh, think about how she's feeling. Going yeah. with the going the, with the logic. That's what you're good at. The practical stuff. Yeah, the practical stuff, and just trying to just take the emotion out of it, and just just set a plan in process, so that if, at least if 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 shit hits the fan, um, the, there's a there's a plan in place that they can either lean into or or, or set, set their own agenda. So that 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 was probably the first. I was sitting there for an hour, then they told me, and then the next hour was just, yeah, just trying to go through those range of emotions, um, planning. It's a defense mechanism in, in, mechanism in, in most instances. You sort of think, if I've got a plan, I'll be all right. But at the end of the day, um, two hours before, prior to that, I was healthy, and, and all I needed was a new pair of sunglasses. That's right. Um, now, now I've got chronic myeloid leukemia. And you're desperate. Really, um, yeah. You're desperately trying to pull back some control by – Thinking, oh, yeah, if, if at least yeah. I can, I, I imagine that you want to feel like you can do something or what, what is in your control to, to try and organize that can make you feel like, like you said, like a plan's going to help. But the scariest thing about being in that position is knowing just how much is not in, in your control. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's, again, you just, you think if I can control this situation, I've got some level of control of my emotions and, and, uh, but, it, but over the journey of the, ever since then, I've realized that um, that you don't really have control. It's all yeah. perception sometimes. Yeah. Then I, I left there and then they uh, they said, oh, look, do you want to get, we're going to transfer you from the Northern Beaches because the hospital only just opens, I don't know, a year or so and the specialist went there. So I said, oh, let's go to Royal North Shore. So I went over there and um, 
that trip from well, from Manly to Chats to St Leonard's where it is is 25 minutes, and it went like that. There was so much um, going through your mind. You sort of feel like you're floating there, and then you get there, you check in, and then um, uh, Dr Chris Arthur, one of the uh, leading hematologists in uh, in Australia and, and definitely in the Royal North Shore, he he walks in. He goes in his kind and gentle ways, but also very, he knows what he's talking about. And uh, he's talking me through what he, they think it is and the reasons why. And I have to do a few more tests. And he said, if I think it's right, I think you've got the best type of cancer that you can get. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> that makes me feel heaps and I, better. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I went, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, don't, I don't give a shit what type of cancer it is. Just I don't want it. Yeah. Get it away from me. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and then you start asking, well, how did this happen and where is it? What causes it? And then they give you booklets and then you got to sit there and read the booklets um, in between mm. crying and, 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 and talking with people. and Thinking, when the fuck did this become my life? Like, literally, that was, that was lunchtime by now. Like, this is nine and then you go to 10 and by 11 you're told and then you cross at lunchtime at 12 seeing the leading hematologist. I couldn't even spell the chemo or hematology but if, if you are. If, if a couple of hours before that. So walking through that ward and on level four, um, you're coming through and you're seeing all these, um, it's obviously not a children's ward, but uh, where leukemia really, really sort of um, affects a lot of kids. But um, you're walking through the ward and, and it's really grey and, and sort of sterile, as you can imagine, but a lot of people are really, really old. And and I'm walking through literally, like I had a black hat on and a, and a white shirt like this. It just is the day of me picking this, I didn't even mean to do that, but I just realized what I was wearing. I had a pair of board shorts on because it was February 19, so it's the end of summer. Got a tan, feeling great, walking through the hematology ward um, and looking at people going, I shouldn't be here. This this, this is not me. This is not it. But I was 32 at the, at the time. The average age of getting it is like 64. So I was like, I was, I was well and truly in front of that that average. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then just realizing that you're sitting there and you're in no man's land. And this is what I've said to a few people prior to that. You're sort of sitting there in no man's land because if you get leukemia as a child, there's plenty of support groups. There's obviously specialized hospitals and and, and um, programs and and mum and dad are there for you. You can rely, rely on them. And then when you're older, when you're supposed to get something or die of something, you're in your sort of 70s, 80s, 90s if you're lucky. And you've lived your life. You've had a career. You've raised kids. you paid off your house. You've traveled the world. I was in no man's land. Didn't have the ability to rely on mum and dad just to say, it's going to be okay. You'll be fine. Versus also didn't have all the experiences to say, well, my time was up either. So that's sort of what I coined the no man's land and, and trying to then reach out. And everyone wants to feel part of a group. Everyone wants to be a part of something, no matter if it is the world's best cancer group. Um, that's a good name for it. And then reaching out for, right, who else has got this? Who else? Can... <laughs> yeah. You do realize that the pamphlets they give you and, and then you've got the Leukemia Foundation and their support group and everything else like that. Then obviously you, you, you speak with them and, and they put you in touch with different different um, counselors and, and and groups and other people in the same sort of age bracket. But, but it sounds yeah, like that, it that sounds like time was you had lonely, to, quite you, lonely. It's, it sounds like you had to do quite a lot of work to look around and try and find a support network because there wasn't one that already existed beforehand. So you had that as an an added difficulty where it's like, so is anyone else my age having this or is this just me that has to go through this for some God knows what reason that I'm just that that one guy who has to face this alone other than people who are 
uh, elderly or kids, which we commonly associate leukemia with. But did you find yeah. that actually you weren't the only one? Were you able to find some common ground with some other people closer to your age or did you really feel like you did go through it alone? No, 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 I, I definitely did. Um, I sort of I, I sort of identified fairly quickly what my feelings were around that. There's a lot of emotions and feelings minute by minute of that day, but um, I didn't realize I needed a group three hours or four hours prior. And then, and then as soon as you have something, you're like, all right, where's my group? Where's my people? I want to belong to something. Now that I've got it, I want to make sure that I'm not the only one in Australia that has it. And you start reaching out to the Leukemia Foundation and talking to your hematologist and they start saying, yeah, there's people at your age bracket between 30 and 40. There's a, there's a, there's a lady in Adelaide. There's a, there's a gentleman in, in, um, in, uh, in Brisbane. And, and then they stay, obviously you need to be there at different stages of themselves and different treatment stages and, and also just not everyone's open to talking about it yeah. to other people with CML or any type of leukemia and or talking about it more broadly. Um, so that's another driver for certain reasons why I've decided post then to, to do certain things with the Leukemia Foundation. Did you find you got some useful support from other people who had that lived experience and you could talk about that together? Obviously, no one can really understand it to the level other than those who are actually going through it. Yeah, I did. I found myself um, acting like I was the counsellor for other CML patients yep. in a strange way. I, I, I don't know if it's because I was, it was a defence mechanism where if I was to give advice to them, I was giving advice to myself. Yeah, and probably like me, better at giving advice to others than following it yourself. And I suppose that creates yeah. a little bit of distance perhaps between the reality for you and what's happening to someone else and a bit easier to yeah. focus on others and, and just a way of coping with it, I suppose, for yourself. Yeah, the two points there, coping and distance. Um, uh, you want to join a group, but you also want to be just at the side of the group riding shotgun. You just yeah. want to make sure you're telling them how to deal with things and then you sit there at night and realize that you're full of hot air, mate, or are you actually going to do this yourself? And yeah. Ego is ego's a, ego's a big thing for a lot of men um, throughout their life and you know, a lot of people throughout their lives, but my ego was screaming pretty hard like, don't be weak and don't be vulnerable and don't tell too many people because they might see you as not the healthy, athletic, confident Michael that you that you try to betray at all times. And that was your identity. Um, was, that was your identity that you'd always had. So you, you didn't want to let that go. I suppose you might have felt as though if you let that go and you accepted what was happening that you might become everything you feared, becoming weak and decrepit and truly sick and not, yeah. the kind of Michael that you saw yourself as being. You have a bit of a saying around ego as well that you use to get you through this. Yeah, ego yeah, ego is the enemy and, and you just got to realise that all of the defence mechanism and all of the shame and the and the aggression and it's sort of like you're flipping and flopping around in your own mind. Like you want to help people and talk about it but then you also feel shame that you're not healthy and then you've got all these fears around not being able to live a long and successful life with your partner and your wife and your kids and like seeing your, your daughter graduate uni or get married and all these other things. There's all these emotions coming all the time and it all comes out and, and you just got to strip all those or put them in, the, put them in their spots and, and try and understand, all right, what's the, real, what's the real fear here and how can we address that and, and figure it out? Because you've got this whirlwind of emotions that's blowing through you constantly where it's just thoughts everywhere. There's so many things to think about so many things to be worried about, so many people to think about how you're going to look after them. 
So what strategies did you learn to be How able to- How do you look to, after yourself? Yeah, yeah. And what strategies did you learn to be able to employ to actually cope with that? Because when we've got all that going through our head constantly and we're physically extremely ill, how do you deal with that? How did you grow to be able to deal with that? Yeah, so this is my first real um, touch up. Like I hadn't broken any bones as a as a kid, and hadn't really had to take any time off for any. Um, I didn't have any mental health issues um, that I could easily identify. I just sort of walked through them in the, in the earlier years and teenage years. So um, when you get to this point where you are initially the first sort of three months or so was that coping mechanism and distance that you mentioned before. So for me, that was putting a lot of time and effort into raising awareness and funds for the world's greatest shave, for example, with the Leukemia Foundation. My little brother was doing some stuff with some of his um, some of his friends and he posted something. I was like, well, I can do that too. That's pretty much me. I'm in that group, so I might yeah. as well do something. And so you're, you're a man of was, action, so taking action made you feel better? Yeah, control. Control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then once you get through that stage and all the lights have dimmed and everyone goes back home and you're looking healthy and all your drugs are working and everyone's asking you and, and, and checking in, uh-huh. um, then you start to get this identity like, I am a person outside of this. Yeah. I, I appreciate everyone calling me, but every time you call me and just say, oh, so how's your health? Are you dead yet? Uh-huh, it's sort of pretty like, much. It's sort of like, no, I'm still here. Yeah. Um, and then you, you, see you, next, you, see you next week. You, that's such an interesting point because you can't, really ever escape that being the the top priority or the thing that's on everyone's mind and you feel like through no fault of anyone else's but every conversation is loaded with that undertone of you've got cancer and how that's going you must have longed for things to go back to you know just when you'd you'd have a bit of banter and and not be so serious but it's a bit of an inescapable fact obviously i mean i've been doing a lot of um yeah a lot of reading and a lot of talking to psychologists and noise things like that and, and doing different events, uh, experiences. And the two things I realized I'm looking back and I'm still doing, like even this morning I was thinking about it and how we'll talk to that today. But during that time, it's it's two angles. It's either empathy or sympathy mm. that people would approach you. Some would have sympathy at, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that about you, but I'm glad it's not me. And <laughs> yeah. it didn't, no one ever said that, but you could tell it was coming across where others were empathetic. Yeah. And would 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 would, but then the only way that in our circle, or, and not everyone, but everyone would say, "Oh, empathetic would be I'll tell you a story that happened to me," yeah. but never actually tried to sit in my pool of, right. of shit. So trying with to me. make it about them, and obviously, yeah, obviously, sharing sharing experience can be massively helpful. But the first thing is to not interrupt someone or throw your story yeah. in or say, oh, I get exactly what you're going through. It's too early for that. You know, you need to first and I was, and, just listen. And I'm not gonna, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not, and I'm not going to um, not put my hand up and say for the first 20 odd years of my life that uh, I would never have done that either. There's a lot of times where you think you're empathetic, but all you're doing is, is acknowledging someone's going through some pain or some struggles and you go, oh, I've got a story for you too. So that must be empathy. Yeah. But also um, people are thinking that, they're thinking that helps, and they're not. They're not doing it because they're necessarily even conscious of making it about them. I guess they're in a way trying to cope oh, with it yeah. as well. Exactly, yeah. and they're not. Um, they're not doing it from a bad place, but it's just, just, it's just how we see things on on uh, TV, on or on on the news, or or the way you interact with household or yeah. your upbringing or, or whatever it is. So it's not as if everyone's come from a bad place, but that was sort of an environment where you sort of like. I don't want to feel people feeling 
sorrow for me or and I don't want to and I don't know what I don't even know if I my body's failed me and I want to show everybody that that I'll get through this because I have to but also I want to and I, I want to get back to that perception of of who I thought it was pre um pre-diagnosis and mm. to be honest with you Callum it's all bullshit you go through big deep dark sort of hole that sort of mid 19 through to October, November 19, that was, that was hard. That was bad. Talking to, having to reach out to psychologists and, and seeing them and go on health retreats and trying all different types of things. Started a psychology degree, um, just not communicating with myself really well, not communicating with my wife really well, withdrawn. And then you start to understand this mental health stuff around anxiety and depression and, and stress and all these other things. And you're like, oh shit, this is it. I'm in this. And you just, you got to a point where some days you're like, is this even really worth it? Like, can I get myself out of bed to do this today? What do I want to achieve today? Do I just want to go for a walk? Or do I want to get back to what I was supposed to be doing pre? So, yeah, you just go through a huge journey and, and self-reflection and, and you're making a lot of mistakes and you're saying the wrong things to your loved ones and yeah. um, and testing things and, and trying to see if, all right, if, who cares if I break this? I don't care if I break this relationship. I don't care if I break that. Yeah. So it's, it, it's easy because so. you're, well, it sounds like you were mad at the world at that point. And I suppose very, yeah. very, very sad about your situation and how unfair that is. And I suppose in your mind, what there was a good chance was going to be taken away from you that you didn't deserve and that your family didn't deserve. And there's a whole lot of reasons to be angry and resentful and bitter. And if that builds over a period of months and months and months, so difficult not to just lean into despair and all the darkness yep. that comes with it. Yeah. For me, I like to know how a car works, follow a recipe and do all these different inputs and you understand what the, what the reasons for things. And, and they could, no one could tell me why I got chronic myeloid leukemia. No, they don't really know. And that still grates me a little bit, mm. not as much as what it did back then. So you, you couldn't understand an it. You couldn't break it down. And that's the way that you interpret the world. So even more frustrating when you can't put your finger on why, yeah. what did I do? What led to this? How can it be prevented? How can I not do this? How can I stop this behavior or a certain food or, 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 or exposure to something or whatever it is like? And again, stress was it work related? Like you just never know. It's about control again, though. Ultimately, under that, what could I have done? How could I have yeah. controlled this and this and the frightening fact of, well, you couldn't have. <laughs> exactly, and I think over the last you know, couple of years now, um, my three-year anniversary of getting the world's best cancer uh, is in uh, February, and the more you accept that you have limited control. And the more that you've just got to um, be more adaptable and flexible to what comes at you, if it's cancer diagnosis or whatever else that may be, the less aggression, the less addiction, the less, uh, the more joy and the more um, ability to see the glass half full. Mm, you yes. just get more fulfillment. And if you've only got a certain amount of time left, try not to focus on the negative thoughts as much try and focus on the positives and make sure that you're in that, that cohort that, that, uh, that survives. And, and then you can then obviously use your experience to help others as best as, as best as you can. And sounds like basic advice, but much easier said than done when you're actually in that hole. 
is changing that perspective was that a large part of what what dragged you out of it or was it starting to really recover from it that pulled you through to the other side of it yeah we we were um obviously farrah was 11 months old when i was diagnosed so you you fast forward another nine months or so or a year she needed shelter and safety and a a place to call her home so we were always saving for a deposit on a house and we bought something in in late 19. so i think that took a bit of a relief off me um i was against it for a while in terms of buying something i thought the market was just going to keep running and it obviously has since then but for me i was like all right well I've got a I've got a shit ton of insurance that if I do die, um, most of that insurance will cover the house repayments anyway. So let's get them let's get them a house, and um, and then we got one. And then from there, having something to um, reset a period of time and reset, and then this is a new this is a new chapter. Yeah, the fresh, house. Fresh, and then building happy start. memories in. Yeah, and having happy memories in that, and then putting a a, a lot of when I get quite. Um, uh, mental health wise start to build up I need to do physical activity and that doesn't necessarily mean go to run or go to gym but it might be digging up the garden or, or mowing the lawn or just things like that so having that house when we were renting for many years prior to that I think that helped shift shift the dial Yeah, but I still would have relapses and I'd still have um, things where I just did not give a shit if I broke it or what I said it was just I think I'm, I'm listening to a few things around sh- the linkages between shame and aggression and addiction and I just felt shameful that my body gave up and I couldn't be this person that I thought I was or needed to be for myself and for others. And it just comes out in a lot of aggression in certain things because I'm scared. And I'm realizing now over time and talking through it with my wife and my friends and family and things, you don't have to, to always be like that. You can you can be okay to be vulnerable in a variety of different experiences going forward and not having this, this anchor or this chain linked to this particular experience or diagnosis ongoing. That's what I'm trying to work on at the moment. And you're struggling so hard to process it. And then in having these outbursts because you're just not able to cope, which is completely understandable, then you feel guilty for lashing out or you, you start to yeah. have that affect your self-worth and your self-esteem and not like yourself as much because it's like, hey – not only am I the sick version of myself, but now I'm this angry, bitter dude as well who's lashing out at the people that love me more than anything. And then yeah. that can yeah. be, I think that's probably maybe the most dangerous part of it all mentally because it's only a hop, skip and a jump from there to seeing yourself as a burden and then we know where that goes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you hit the nail on the head in terms of the opposite side of the coin of shame is guilt. And, and I was... I was flipping that coin all day long yeah, and trying to get myself out of that rut and trying to get myself out of that headspace and not being able to identify it at the time. And I'm only really starting to identify it more and more now, the more you sort of listen to different opinions and, and people, but yeah, shame and guilt was, um, was a big driver for all that. And that goes back deeper to childhood things and other things like that. You just need to identify and understand that all of the bravado and, and aggression and or laughter. Some people obviously like to be the class clown, for example, or like to make other people happy, but then they go home and they cry themselves to sleep, for example, because that's just a persona or, or an image they put out there. 
whatever it may be, for me, I'm trying to find out what started the bin fire and, and trying to address that. You don't have to put it out, but you just got to address it. And once you do that, I think you have more fulfillment in who you are. You trust who you are. And the next time this happens, because there's always going to be an event or something that happens in your life, you have the tools and, and the ability to process and the right people around you the next time this, this comes along. Well said. Really just trying to figure out um, who I who I think I am and who I want to be. And mm. and my addiction was getting just constant improvement and, and trying to get better. And, and that's, that's sort of over time is also diluted a little bit because um, you'll be just in a constant state of, trying to be better or trying not to get get sick and be strong and you're never actually enjoying yourself you're not enjoying the journey yes at all yes and you're always worried about what's going to be around the corner yeah as a kid i was a, I was a worry wouldn't beat my nails down to the bit my nails quite a bit so um yeah you, you just fall back into these these childhood sort of um personalities and they start to come out and then being an adult, you can't just have a tantrum or say things or break stuff and expect people to to respect that or, or understand that. Yeah. Um, I've got a I've got a three and a half year old at the moment, and she was she's acting better than what I was back in the day. Um, so, so you sort of just have to say, all right, Michael, come on, mate, let's um let's get this shit sorted and, and get yourself back on the road, and just slowly by slowly starting to figure out, all right, what is my major personal goal today and my major professional goal and what are two minor professional and two minor personal goals that I want to get today. It might be mowing the lawn or it might be making that call to a colleague that you haven't said, haven't spoke to for a while. Uh Just all these little things. You're just starting small, starting small, focusing on the wins Mm. um, and just getting back to your foundations. And once your foundations feel solid again, then you can start to stack in all the other stuff. And it comes pretty quick. It exponentially comes back pretty fast. Then you're out of that mindset. Um, I wasn't on it. I didn't take any um, any chemicals as the GPs like to sometimes give out for anxiety yeah. and depression. I uh-huh. didn't want to do that. So I focused on sort of exercise and um and reading and reflecting. So that's, yeah. that's sort of where it so got to. So ultimately you, you did the right things and you, to look after yourself. I think it's crucial to make that choice to invest in yourself with looking after your health and trying to put yourself in the best position to be able to recover. Although it would be so easy to go, screw this, I'm not going to survive anyway yeah. and I just feel so terrible that I'm just going to do all the bad things something in you eventually was like, no, we're going to do the good things. We're going to be sensible. We're going to tick off little goals at a time until we get our self-worth back and then get closer to being that Michael that always was that was unfairly ripped away from yourself. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the responsible responsible Michael sort of come out. But um, I went away on a health retreat for a week up in Queensland and there was no – no um no alcohol no caffeine no no gadgets and things and and you got you, you, I sort of over the course of the week because everyone has their own um, reasons for being at a health retreat and, um, domestic violence or, or cancer or a death in the family or, or whatever it may be but um, over that week the the authentic me came out the 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 um, the cheekiness and the the lightheartedness and the, there's no aggression. Now there's just a lot of um, empathy and openness for there's a couple of guys there that my age as well for their own reasons. 
and it was just the most um, fulfilling week that I that I had, and and very grateful to my wife. She's looked after our little one while I was away as well, and I just felt so. I come back with all these grand ideas, and and um, we're doing yoga now every morning, darling. And we're meditating at night. <laughs> <laughs> you got a only, strict regime. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and she's like, "Holy shit! I'm not doing any of that." <laughs> Who are you? I was like, why not? You, you had I was a man. Like, why not? You had a man bun and like herbal tea. <laughs> exactly, and and she's like, "Who the fuck has come back now?" And um, and I was just trying all these different things, but at the core of it, on reflection, just looking at sort of trying to find why people are attracted to other people and what are their core skill sets, and everyone's unique. But once you know those and what they are, in a professional or personal sense. It's it's you it's your unique um, traits that attract people, and when you're when you're in a state of just acknowledging those and being vulnerable with them and knowing what they are and happy with those, you attract a lot of positivity. Yeah. And once you sort of once I figured that out, I was like, all right, well, if I can do this and I can focus on this, then then I'll get myself out of this run. I'll step on the next the next rung of the ladder and I'll get myself out of this hole. And that that kickstarted that process and and because um, then you're starting to build momentum. Yes, it's momentum and cadence. That's that's what you want to try and focus on. And playing sports and and being in teams, you, you can sort of feel the momentum shift in a game. If you're playing soccer or rugby union or netball or whatever, you can feel this momentum shift. And once you can identify that, you're like, all right, cool. Let's let's tap into that. Let's keep the cadence going. Let's let's build on this. And it may not finish the game and win the game, for example. But you go to the next week. You go to the next week. It's the same with this. You might not be able to sort out the, the the world's problems in in one one thought or, or one day, but you start to get that cadence and you stick stick those together, and next thing you know, you're out of that hole and and you're back to your normal self. Yeah. So you, you start to believe, and it's not a fast process, <laughs> but every day matters just as much as the one beforehand. And just like you can build that momentum and quickly ascend, you can also spiral and go back the other way just as quickly. So, yeah. where are you at with everything now? Uh, so I take I take um, two tablets in the morning and at night, and I've been doing that from pretty much week one. Um, and my my chemical makeup and my age and and my health general health is uh, reacted really well to that. So for me, um, working towards I said, well, it's a daily reminder that you've got cancer. You just got you just literally just got to swallow it and walk out the door. Um, so for me, it's trying to get to that three-year uh, date, which is when you can then start to come off and trial to see if your body's um, reaction to the drugs is uh, is going to be able to be sustained without the drugs. So that's the next um, goal and working towards that. And um, and then obviously just trying to make sure that uh, I tap in with or speak with as, as many people who are going through CML process like me. Um, some people can't come off the drugs. Um, some people relapse or some people escalate from chronic stage to acute stage. And and everyone's got different levels of how they're dealing with it. They've just got their own little goals and, and that's my one. Um, and uh, and then from there, it's continuing to have um, a bigger family and, and getting back to some level of normality. But at the core of it, I still want to obviously give back and, and continue to talk with that 64-year-old gentleman that's being diagnosed and he might need someone to talk to or that little girl that was diagnosed with AML and a family friend of mine, um, his, uh, his daughter was diagnosed and it just, uh, just breaks your heart. So yeah. 
um, yeah, trying to raise awareness and, and really getting the conversation going and, and just demystifying um, how people use sympathy and empathy around an event like any type of, of health issue just so people are more open to it and more empathetic to it and um, and realise how much good work the Leukemia Foundation is doing and, and who they help and how where the money goes and the research and the drug development and, and the support, like even just um, putting a family up who might be in Dubbo, for example, having to come into Sydney, dad might have to stay home or mum might have to stay home and work while the other parent goes into the city for two, three weeks. It's quite costly. And most families can't do it. So I'd hate to see someone, um, a five-year-old, go to hospital and not have their mum or dad around them um, going through such a traumatic event like that where they're scared and all they want is safety. That's at the end of the day. That's all I really want to is just some safety. So trying to find that, you sort of do some weird and wonderful things when you're trying to find safety and shelter. And having gone through it yourself, you know so deeply what the reality (laughs) of that actually is. And you're now in this position to be one of those guys that you were looking for when you got this diagnosis and you were looking around saying, hey, is this just me? You know, someone in that position who hears you speak about it so openly and, and in such a raw way and, and not sugarcoat it, of this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever been through. But even if you get to the sort of low that, that you were at, there's still a way forward. There's still practical things that you can do and it's not over. So you're in an incredible position now to be able to help others. I suppose your recovery is still the top priority and you've got to stay on top of that, but definitely mm. speaking out about it and, and wanting to be one of these voices must help you uh, with your symptoms of optimism and, and with your own journey. Yeah, a sense of meaning and fulfillment and 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 the ability to share your experiences with, 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 with people that want to lean into that. Not everyone wants to address um, address the conversation or, or some people just want to hide in the corner and, and fight or flight. Yeah, because so it's hard. It, it's hard. I'm, it's very hard to do because uh, it's, it's so incredibly painful and goes right to the core of our fears as human beings. So. There's no wonder that most people don't want to talk to. That's why I want to acknowledge you for being brave enough to step up and do that when there's no uh, reliance on you to to do so. Yeah, thank you, Alma. I think that means a lot. Um, I think the ability to have enough confidence in your own vulnerability and people accept you for warts and all is something that I've always strived for. I'm, I'm quite a... Uh, intense, uh, uh, passionate individual in most circumstances. But for me, yeah, when I felt like I was in no man's land and I was scared and and wanted safety and I wanted wanted someone to be in that that pit of despair with me, uh, I thought I'm never going to not continue to offer the people the hope that there is someone to talk to or somewhere somewhere to go or or reach out to a, a foundation or, or even just having these types of conversations and putting this up on, on podcasts, for example, is, is just, it's just all going to help. And on the other side of COVID and the mental health and the illnesses that are going to come from that, some people might not be able to relate to my particular story, but they might be able to hear about the journey that I went on and they might be able to relate it to that at some point and then have the confidence to talk about it with their best mate or their sister or whatever it else may be. And, and that, I think that's worth 
every single conversation and, and, and minute spent raising money, sharing awareness and talking about it. Absolutely. Well said. It can be the difference. It really can. Just hearing those stories at the moment that you need it to know that, yeah, someone's felt like you felt and, yeah, they've gotten through it and so can you. That can be so crucial and certainly still underrated as something that helps us get through these kinds of times. So now when you yeah. look at your family knowing that you've survived every day, how do you feel inside yourself? Is there an extra layer of gratitude? Uh, yes. It's, 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 you, you don't take things for granted and um, you obviously want to, uh, be fully sort of a hundred percent in on things. Uh, you want to, um, you want to be as authentic as, as possible. And, um, but then it also comes with some bad things. Well, my tolerance for certain people or certain experiences is, is, is a bit lower because I don't know how long, much long I've really got. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of like, oh, all right, I've had enough of that. See you later. Um, yep. but yeah, it just, there's all different ranges of emotions. If I want to be a better person and be a better husband and a, and a better son and, and dad um i always need to be sort of self-checking and looking back and going all right that was a bit of a doozy a couple of years ago michael you could have you could have really went off a, off a different um path with that one uh what are you doing today that um is acknowledging that and getting better and also making sure you help as many others with their journey um not every day i'm not on a crusade where everyone has to come to me with their problems and I have to fix them all the time uh, but that gets people a bit know much <laughs> Yeah, it would. Um, but if if people know that 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 Michael that was um, confident and, and strong and and healthy looking um, prior to my diagnosis, and but people still feel exactly the same thing about me post for different reasons because I can be a a, a, a listening ear or I can offer some advice or, um, or 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 give them some 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 courage or, or enjoyment. I think. Um, that narrative in my head is is changed a little bit and um, that's where you get fulfillment and that's where you get enjoyment and that's where you start to really see that life is is, is quite um, is, is awesome and and hopefully that is an attractive quality that people want to come towards and uh, and then you can then you can create that no man's land all of a sudden has a variety of different people in that spot and and, uh, and everyone's everyone's going through their own things and of, uh, of joy and, and sadness at different stages, but everyone knows that they can always come back to that place. Well, it sounds like to me that despite this immense challenge and extreme pain that you've been through, that you've ended up being a different version of the man that you do want to be when you spent a period of time so far away from that and never knew if you'd get back to that. And although your circumstances are by no means perfect now, it certainly sounds like you've become a, a the sort of Michael that you knew yourself in your heart to be and that's mm. worth continuing to fight for. So I think you should be very proud of yourself for surviving, number one, and then for all the extra effort that you go to to help others through such an incredibly difficult challenge. Yeah. There's plenty of people who have done it beforehand. There'll be plenty of people who do it afterwards. It's just a matter of who you want to be and um, and do you want to be counted on these sort of things and and I'm uh, I'm trying to make sure that yeah, just creating a voice and creating a a, a medium or, or or some some level of 
dialogue on on it and in, and and say to people it's it's okay to talk about it and it's as as living the, the charity says it's not weak to speak and yeah and um, just getting it out of there because if it sits in your mind um it doesn't get out and it just has really bad outcomes so sharing it around is is, is quite helpful with the leukemia foundation some of the stats i sent me the other day about there's like 50 people today that were diagnosed with some form of blood cancer um, 15 people died today from blood cancer so there's a lot of effort to get people aware that blood cancer, some of them you can pronounce and some of them you can't. Um, but blood cancer is is a serious cancer. And like my uncle, he hadn't really heard about it much in, in CML beforehand. And then after a, a month or two after I was diagnosed, he was playing golf with his mate and he said his son had been diagnosed. He said to me, I felt a lot more confident talking to him and, and relating to him and empathizing with him more at ease and he didn't have to be so stoic and bravado around it and he was able to be vulnerable in, in front of his mates and to me that was like out of all the money raised all the donations and things that little piece of, of insight was really what i'm trying to do is just to give people the ability to share their stories relate and understand and, and just have a better conversations with ourselves and you're a big part of that mission mate so well done and thank you for telling your story today and I truly wish you well with the, the rest of your recovery journey. Thanks, Carl. Really appreciate it as well. Anytime. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Youngblood Media, and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. You can sign up to our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.